We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support. And now for the show. You know, I'm going to take it back a little bit of a notch and kind of go back to the educational experience here just for a little bit. So you really did a really good job with kind of talking about the pre-wex and kind of um, your dental education with kind of the didactic and the clinical education components. Um, But of course, after graduating from school, there comes the licensing examination, which we're all super excited to take. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Always. And do you think for our listeners who probably perhaps don't know, could you kind of break down how the dental licensing exam is structured and kind of what was your experience with preparing for and taking the exam? Yeah, um, very stressful. I think probably the most stressful event in my life after trying to get into dental school, maybe even before. So in dental school, all dental schools pretty much nationwide, you have to take, it's called the National uh, Dental Exam, National Board Dental Exam. So you take it at the end of your second year or depending on how you, you take it at the end of like your didactics. And then once you're done with your didactics, you can take that exam. It's called NBDE1. That's about 400 questions and you have eight hours. So you study. I spent the whole summer studying for that and then took it like in January, February around that time. And then you go about your clinical business, you know, finish the two years in dental school. You get to your fourth year. Okay, so your fourth year is where things get crazy because you're trying to get all your clinical requirements, you're trying to graduate, and then trying to take all these boards. Um, So then you take the NBDE part two, and that one is 500 questions, also eight hours. And this type of test deals specifically with your clinical sciences. So like, how do you do a root canal? Or like, I'll specifically tell you like what type of material. All right, if you're gonna autoclave, what temperature should it be at? You know, it's pretty much all the sciences, everything related to dentistry for that second exam. Um, and you have pretty much everything. It's pretty. It's more or less, you know, common sense or not common sense, but being in the clinic, you kind of get the flow of things. You kind of see like you kind of know what they're gonna ask because it's all dental related. So it's it's not like you've never seen it before, but you do need to study for that. So that's pretty much the requirement for all schools, I believe, um, and for graduation. Now there's a separate part to this. Let's say so I'm from. San Diego, I went to the Midwest. It's called the Western Regional Board. So there's also the NERB and I think CERTA, which is a Southern Regional Board. So there's t- different regions of where you want to, of exams you want to take depending on where you want to practice. So f- for example, I took the REB, which is the Western Regional Board. 
Um, pretty much you can go about it two ways. You can do a one-year residency and that will suffice for that exam. But the caveat to that is you're only limited to practice in one state. And I think specifically, if since luckily I'm from California, um, you pretty much have to stay in California. You can't practice anywhere else because that's pretty much giving you a freebie. Like you don't want to take your exam, but you have to stay in California. Or you take the REB exam, which in my case was a clinical two-day event. Uh, and I have to find patients that fit a certain requirement, have it pre-screened, and to make sure they were good to go. And pre-screen is making sure my faculty look at it. Now, when it comes to the day of the event or the day of the exam, if my patients don't pass the pre-screening, I can fail on the spot. Or it's like, hey, you have... So they gave us an extra day, an extra... Um, technically, we have... So exam starts... Friday, Saturday, and then we have extra time on Sunday morning. And if let's say I failed that pre-screening or like one of my patients failed, no showed me, then I have until Sunday to kind of make that section up. But you only can make up one section. So that's two days of live patient exam. And then also there's a written portion to that, which is eight hours. So you're going to pass that. And then if I get the, if you pass the red, then you can pretty much practice anywhere along the Western region. So Washington, Oregon, Arizona, some places take Texas, Indiana took the Western Regional Board, you know, certain states accept certain regions. Um, I know the NERB, and my school offered the NERB, which is the Northeastern Regional Board. Theirs is diff slightly different than mine. They had a written portion, and then, and what's similar to what the read, but their clinical is one day. So they pretty much go from 7 a.m. until they finish all the requirements that's expected them for that exam. So it's similarities more or less, but it's just different timings. Like the uh, written portion for the NERB, you had to take, you can take separately. And then also with the clinical, you take it at the school, the whole school shuts down and like, all right, you're doing your exam. The REB, my school didn't accept or didn't provide the REB because the Western Regional Board wasn't popular. So I had to drive all the way to Case Western along with my patients and pay them pretty much pay my patients to go like, Hey, I got to pay for your housing and all that. And the biggest stressful part was making sure they showed up because they can easily show up in Indiana, but having them drive five hours to take an exam, sit an exam, hoping that they would show, you know, and I mean, that was just a lot of money for them to um, show up. And luckily I had two, you know, great patients that were willing to help me out. So they, drove out there and helped me with my exam. You know, I got compensated for, and yeah, that was pretty stressful and very, uh, yeah, I just don't remember that part. <laughs> yeah, Daryl, that seems pretty intense uh, as yeah. far as a, a board exam goes, but kind of looking back on your experience, I mean, what did you think about the content tested on the dental licensing exam? Did you think it was appropriate? Did you think it was up to date? Did it fit? You know, like what were your thoughts on the exam? Honestly, I mean, I think it was somewhat appropriate in terms of the written portion and all the lab portions that were related to the exam. The other part that I had an issue with was, okay, so the REB and the NERB have different styles of diagnosing cavities. So for the REB, it was more, a little bit more, not aggressive, but it's like, okay, this tooth doesn't need a cavity yes, it needs to be filled. 
for the NURB, for example, it looked like there was a cavity, but not really, but you know, it was still done. So the, the requirements were not, the prerequisites for like a cavity was not consistent. Two, then there's the ethics part of it um, with the whole exam in which, you know, okay, we do the exam. I'm pretty much soliciting patients. And like, if I found you guys on the street, like, hey, we're, we're providing free exams. Can you come in? I'm like pretty much I'm only screening for do you fit A, B, C, D on my test and can I use you? The next is like, okay, are you willing to do this? I'm going to pay you to do this. And it got crazy where patients were paying, like my classmates, we had as a class, we had to set like, okay, we're only going to pay our patients. I think it was a certain amount. And then no one is allowed to go overboard because then some patients will start complaining, you know, and say, I'll pay you more if you become my patient. So stuff like that. The ethics part of it, you know, was a little dicey. Will they get, uh, will they have follow-up care? Because this, this test happens February, February, March, and we walk in May. So it happens fairly quick. So who's going to see them for the rest of their care? Um, So yeah, um, that was, I mean, the content, yeah, I mean, they could probably do away with the clinical portion, but I get it. They want to see if we're doing everything ideal. So yes, I understand the whole, like, how are you going to grade and make sure everyone passes a hundred students or so in order for them to practice. I know some schools now, I think, is it UOP or UCSF? Don't quote me on that. But I know they're, um, they're doing this thing called a portfolio where you get a case, pretty much whatever the requirements are, instead of seeing, instead of doing a live patient, whatever patients you had throughout your clinical career, you document and you got to present. And that's the substitute for the clinical portion. So you're like writing an essay, doing all that, instead of having a live patient, you know, okay, let me go drill in your teeth and do this for the day. And so, yeah, there's works in changing that, but I feel like it's kind of hard to do away with it because I can see the need to have for someone or for the board to be like, okay, can this person prep a tooth to ideal? Can this person do a filling? Cause I feel like it's kind of hard to not see that if you're not actually doing it on the real patient. Now for the standardized patient, it's kind of hard. Some patients I've seen. Okay. And then here's the other thing too. It's like, let's say we do have a standardized patient. You do their fillings. You're not going to wait another year to do the other fillings because technically the fillings need to be done. Right. So, you know, it could get worse or not. It's probably going to get worse. So why then there's the ethics part of it. Like, okay, why am I going to wait six months, three to six months to do this filling when technically you should be doing it like now you need to address the issue. And that goes back to the whole ethics part. I just feel like it's hard to find those standardized patients in dentistry. If you need to drill on a tooth and, yeah, make sure that you're doing it right. Yeah. And Daryl, do you happen to recall the cost of those exams? A couple hundred for the exams. And then like for the written clinical, I mean, you're looking at a thousand to 2000. And then on top of that, you have to pay. So then I had to pay my patient for the chair. So like travel time, housing, lodging, and then I had an assistant. So then I was like, Hey, assistant, how much do you charge on a exam day when you do exams? She's like, I charge this. I'm like, okay. So I charge her or pay her. And then on top of that, I have to pay for housing. So it's like, okay. So it it all stacks up. Um, That's for me because I had to go out of state to case Western. 
to do that. Um, but I know, let's say if it were a local exam or done at the school, then you would just pay the patient like, okay, um, you sit if they're cool with it, then they'll say, yeah, I'll do it for free. Or if you kind of more convincing, you kind of pay them like you pay them under the table. Like, okay, thanks for doing this. I, I'll pay you whatever you're working. If you're working this day, how much are they paying you? And then I will compensate for that. And then you pay your assistance also. So yeah, it's, it's a crazy game. And then the other thing too is like that money can stack up. People use money to be like, to try to get their patients you know, so it's like, Hey, I can pay you this. Or sometimes it's even trading. Like I've seen or I've heard stories. And I don't know if it's true where it's like, I have a patient, I have patient A, B, and C stacked, ready to go. A patient A doesn't fall through. Then I have B and I have C. Let's say day of the exam, I have patient A, B and C. Technically I can be like, Oh, you need a patient. Like, what are you going to do for it? Like people can get pretty crazy for these patients. And that's where the whole ethics again comes in. It's like, you know, Trading, treating patients as like an item. It's like, and you need my patient, what are you going to do? Wow, that's really shocking, frankly, to kind of hear how that all works. And, and Daryl, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit because mm-hmm. I'm really rather curious because with PTs, we have the American Physical Therapy Association or commonly known as the APTA. And of course, there's the, for you guys, it's the American Dental Association or the ADA. And I'm really curious from your perspective, just because I want to compare how does the profession perceive the ADA and what are some of the pros and cons of the ADA? So the ADA, I mean, I feel like they, they don't quite listen. And we do the whole lobby day in DC. Um, if you're pretty proactive about that, if you're into that, then, you know, we have a bunch of representatives you know, kind of go to that and try to get our voices heard. Um, but at the end of the day, the ADA oversees what um, each state, and so we have the CDA, the IDA, or Indiana for IDA, and then CDA for California. And we pretty much, as a dentist, as a community, we try to work with them and try to get things done. We feel like things are very slow. Um, and sometimes where they've done things like, for example, Delta Dental, they've made decisions that kind of not benefit the practitioner in mind. So there's always that issue. And it's politics, you know. Um, but other than that, I mean, usually we keep to ourselves and work within our community to kind of just make sure the California Dental Association and everything is smooth. Nothing is like happening too crazily or affecting the dentists in our area. So I feel like there's a lot of people who don't like the ADA. I feel like the ADA is pretty good in terms of resources and such, but in terms of policy change, it can be pretty difficult. Oh, yeah. Interesting, man. So, you know, I'm really kind of curious because, you know, kind of learning more about dentistry, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that patients and frankly, other healthcare providers commonly have about what dentists do? So they feel a lot of patients I get is like, all we do are cosmetics. Um, And that's not the case. You know, we're here for your oral health, your oral hygiene, making sure everything is good. Um, and so they come in being like, Oh, you're too expensive, blah, blah, blah. Now there's that other part of being expensive where they think that dentists just want us. They just, the dentists just want the patient's money. And the truth is dentistry is not expensive. Neglect is. So don't wait, you know, to have an exam six months. If you keep up with your exam and 
you listen to your dentist and say, okay, good practice, good oral hygiene and all that, you should be fine. But if you're getting cavities every time you go to a dentist at that age, you got to take a look at what you're doing because something's not going right in that um, environment. Um, so yeah, then there's the whole part of um, the counter to that is then patients, you know, patients don't prioritize, prioritize oral health, oral health, very at the bottom. Um, and I've seen, you know, patients walk in with Gucci bags, you know, the nice designer handbags, and then they don't want to do a filling and we're like, okay, but you need the filling or not. It's not that you need the filling, but it's like, we highly recommend, you know, before it gets worse. And then they're like, no, okay. And then we're like, all right, well, there's only so much that we can do. We can't force you to do the work. So yeah. And then they talk about how much money that they spend by, by the new iPhone, but there's, there's a huge discrepancy of how people or majority of patients view dentistry. And that's where uh, the general dentist has a hard time trying to combat like, okay, like, you know, you have a problem, like we need to fix this or help you. And I think, you know, this is where the education, trying to educate the patient, understand why things are the way they are. We have to get them to look at the bigger picture, not just like, oh, doc, my tooth hurts. And this is another issue too, is like patients feel like they don't see the problem unless it's hurting them. There can always be a problem and it doesn't have to hurt. And so that's what they don't realize. Like, but doc, you know, my tooth doesn't hurt. It's not sensitive. Like, why do I need a filling? And like nine times out of 10, you know, like it doesn't need to hurt in order for it to be a problem. And then and that's when they see us is like, oh, my tooth's hurting. Can you do this now? And, you know, it's an emergency. Like we've told you, you know, if it's an existing patient, like, hey, we kind of addressed this issue before. And then now you're coming in pain. And then all of a sudden expect to get it done that moment. It's like, we kind of address it before, like, look, we got to, you know, work things out. Because then next thing you know, they're going to be treating the doctors like, oh, he'll fix it like he did last time. So I'll wait till it hurts. Go to dentist when wait for another tooth or problem to hurt and then fix it. And then later along the road, it's like, dang, like, I wish we had a better plan of how to address this. Like, where, what can we do? And then they try to salvage. I'm not salvage, but like, I've seen patients where they try to come back and be like, I've had this, t I've had, I'm ready. I'm ready to make this change. And like, all right. So they expect us, you know, to do miracles, work miracles when, and then it takes time, you know, yes, you're, you're ready with help, but they have to understand it's a long process if they want to get to where they want, you know, with the uh, end goal in mind. Yeah. I think uh, we're seeing this all across healthcare, but prevention is a lot easier than treatment. Right. But it's also a harder sell. Yeah, it is. And then, so that's where, you know, I feel like that's where the shift has to go is like yeah. prevent, like if I can, if you come into my office, we do your fillings. And if I don't have to see you until the next six months, because I don't want to have to keep seeing you to do fillings, you know, like, Hey, there's something going on. I'd rather have you come back and like, Hey doc, I'm ready for my cleaning. Cool. Everything's good. You know, as long as that's happening, I'm happy. Like, because having you come back, Every time there's a filling, you know, there's, there's something else going on there. So Daryl, what are some unique specialties or settings that dentists work in that perhaps the public and even other healthcare providers are, are mainly not aware of? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the best thing about dentistry is you can go, um, it's pretty much like you can go through any avenue you want to go after dentistry. You want to do dental dentistry. Great. That's perfect. 
you can go into education, you know, teach. And I feel like the majority of general dentists that I've come in contact with do want to give back and teach, whether, whether it be like in your general dental community, going back to school, where you went to school, um, teaching other professions, you know. So I feel like there's the avenue, the educational aspect. Um, and so there's that. And then there's other specialties too if you want to pursue beyond general dentistry. So there's oral surgery. There, That's, you know, extractions, um, surgery face in the mouth, lining for ortho, cut your jaw open and then realign them. So all that crazy stuff with surgery. And there's orthodontics where there's braces, thumbs, and the bone, and deep cleanings and implants. Um, there's endodontics with the root canal. So there's plenty of ways to go about it. You know, you can work in the private sector, private practice, corporate world, own multiple offices if you like, and start a business that way. And then there's the public sector or um, where you can work at a really rural area and provide care there. So there's many ways you can go about dentistry. You know, you can go into research you know, study the dental materials and figure out what's the best dental material that um, is out there in the market. There's a lot of things you can do in dentistry and that's what the beauty of is it of it is, is you don't have to stay in one spot. You can figure out, oh, I want to go here. Maybe in two years, like, I want to be an endodontist. So you can do that. It's never too late to do anything or pivot in the field of dentistry. So it's just a matter of what you want to do and uh, how you want to go about it. Interesting. And, you know, Daryl, just kind of curious here, are there certain specialties that people tend to go in more and there are certain professions or certain specialties, excuse me, that people are less likely to go in? Like, and kind of, does it matter in terms of salary? Like, is there a difference between specialty? Like which ones get more, which ones get less? Yeah. So, um, I feel like right now it's heavy in pediatrics, which is children and orthodontics, which is the braces. A, there's not a lot of overhead and they're pretty simple. Uh, you, it's not cut and dry, but I mean, you can more or less like pretty much do the same thing and you can get the same result. And there's not a whole lot to mess. And that's like with any other specialty. And I feel like those right now, they're too popular. Um, and then I think the highest paying one right now is the toss up between oral surgery and orthodontics, you know, braces, braces cost what, seven grand for a kid. You see them for two years. All right, you're done. You see, and then you just, you just stack up your office and that's all you do. Invisalign, seven grand a kid. And that's easy money right there. Then you have oral surgery where you're taking out thirds, wisdom teeth all day, implants, you know, putting people to sleep. So that's a huge plus. Um, placing implants and doing all that crazy stuff. So I feel like those two are high up there in terms of uh, getting uh, the most paid for. Uh, I feel like prosthodontics, which is like dentures and all of that, like removable partials, I feel like it's making a comeback. Now there's a shift in like surgical aspect with the pros because this is more prosthodontics is more of an old school type of practice. I've heard people saying it's phasing out because technically a restorative dentist or general dentist who's really good at that can pretty much do that if they want. It's just now a prosthodontic, a prosthodontist just charges a higher fee. Um, 
anything, any of those specialties a general dentist can do. It's just, is that general dentist comfortable doing the procedures? And it's up to the general dentist to be like, am I providing and am I holding myself to the standard of care to that specialty now? So now the general dentist has to be like, okay, is it up to standing with them? Because if not, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. So I feel like that's pretty much those two are high up there. Oral surgery, I mean, you're either looking at a four additional four years to six years, depending on six years if you want the MD, four years if you want the just the certificate, and then orthodontics, which is two years, um, depending on what type of program. So most graduate programs after dental school, averaging two years, and you make a good amount of money on all of those after. So it just depends on where you want to go and how you set up your office. Interesting. And, you know, and Daryl, kind of going back to your experience going through residency at the Ohio State University, um, uh-huh. to kind of give our listeners some perspective on kind of what dental residency is, do you think you can kind of go through what your experience in residency has entailed? Yeah. So graduating dental school, there's, you kind of make the choice. There's two kind of residencies. There's a general practice residency, and then there's the AEGD, which is Advanced Educational uh, General Dentistry. So the GPR, I feel like, is more hospital-based. So you're working in a hospital with hospital patients. And the AEGD is more of a private practice setting and more clinical-based, so more real-life general dentistry. In my experience with the GPR, I was seeing patients who uh, were in the hospital. Um, you go into ED, they page you and be like, hey, this patient is swelling. Like, okay, screen them, and then do I need to refer to all surgery, or is this something I can do? Um, you work in, with patients who uh, are going through chemo or about to go through radiation therapy, especially around the head and neck. So you're looking, okay, is this field of radiation going to affect their teeth? And if so, do we need to extract them now? And which ones do we need to extract? Because then the whole healing, if you try to extract it, healing is going to be compromised after they get the radiation. And we also work with patients who are, you know, more or less difficult to work with, uh, special needs patients. Um, we work with patients from the psychology department, you know, patients normally that would be referred to us from the private practice sector, which would be a little bit more difficult to handle because we can sedate our patients, not fully, not put them to fully asleep, but you know, enough to get them comfortable. And we're also very heavily surgery-based, so a lot of extractions, a lot of patients who need dentures. So it's very hospital-based. So we were in the hospital, and then if we needed to go see patients at this room, the nursing department or whatever department would be like, hey, can you check this patient out? Like, there's something wrong with their teeth. Or, for example, we had a patient who had a was in um, the ICU, and, you know, intubated, but the patient kept biting the tongue. So they asked us to build them like a, a night or uh, to prop their teeth open so they stopped biting their teeth. So stuff like that, um, hospital base. And then the clinical AEGD is more of like, okay, that's more of like general dentistry fillings. We still do fillings in our GPR, but I feel like the AEGD is more, it's heavily based on that, more cosmetic based and such. 
Yeah, so Daryl, with many healthcare professions having different post-professional development paths with, you know, one being residencies and fellowships, could you tell us uh, the different post-professional paths, including residency and fellowship that dentists can pursue? Yeah, so there's a GPR, AGD, if you're confused and don't know where you want to go. And then there's oral surgery, if you're into, you know, taking teeth out, placing implants, taking jaws apart, putting them back together which is pretty cool. Um, there's the uh, perio, which is the gums and bone again. You can also place implants. There's the kids, pediatrics, and then there's the prosthodontic department, which works a lot with removable um, and fixed prosthesis. So crowns, bridges, more advanced crowns, bridges, full mouth rehabs. Um, they can go surgical also. So, yeah. Very interesting, man. And you know, Daryl, how can dentists and other healthcare professionals interact in order to reach the best possible health outcomes for our patients? As you know, I know a lot of physical therapists interact with dentists for collaboration for um, TMD or for those who aren't sure what that is for temporomandibular dysfunction. So do you think you can kind of right. tell us, talk a little bit about kind of um, best methods for collaboration that you've, rec- that you've kind of noticed thus far between dentistry and other healthcare providers? Yeah, um, I think it goes back to the whole how dentistry is segregated from the medical model. So I think the conversation has to start there and be like, okay, how can I integrate dentistry? And that's good that you guys, you know, are looking like, oh, your oral cavity, like, hey, like, you know, you have this, maybe I suggest you seeing a dentist. So that can be step one um, right now. And I feel like that's probably the hardest part because we're not part of the medical model. We're like separate. So that's where the issue is. And I feel like that's where we can kind of, help things go along. Um, I feel like right now there's, I've seen and dabbled around the idea of like, you know, the whole blockchain kind of thing. So having a universal, um, health information data. So like, okay, you see that the patient can come in, I can pull up the records and be like, okay, you saw Dr. So-and-so, you know, instead of them having to fill out a brand new health, new patient exam home for us, it's all there. It's integrated. So it's more or less like, okay, we can kind of figure out, you know, what this patient needs or, okay, like just to make sure everything is whole and complete. Um, And I think there should be an easier access for the patients to see dentists. And that again goes from the insurances, you know, how they perceive dentistry and, and just having their private practitioner or whoever they're seeing just be like, Hey, maybe you should go check out a dentist to get things done or, anything like that. I just feel like the access should just be there and, you know, a little bit easier, you know, to kind of connect them. And it just means mentioning like, Hey, I suggest go see a dentist or something. Yeah, for sure. That's some really good info, Daryl. You know, uh, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show tonight and, and taking your time to chat with us about this. I, I know yeah, our no audience get a lot of info and a lot of good value from it, but we like to ask our, all of our guests this one final question. If you could change mm-hmm. one aspect of healthcare education, dentistry or otherwise, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? I think for dentistry... I think that it should be instead of four years, make it five years, make that fifth year an extra like a residency year. Cause you don't know what you don't know. I mean, yes, you graduate minimally competent, but then that extra year gives you that more clarity of like, okay, I want to pursue this or, Oh, I thought this differently in dental school. Now that you have a better grasp of things. And I think that's where 
it should go. Now, now I, now I know a lot of people are going to be like, why go fifth year, you know, when you can start making money. But I looked the trade off. Yes, you can start making money off then. But when I came out, I felt a lot more comfortable treating patients and knowing how to do things. So I feel like that should be part of the curriculum, just introducing maybe a fifth year or yeah, just making it more rigorous, I guess, a little bit more rigorous or just that we need a little bit more for the students so that they feel a lot more comfortable when they get out. Cause that was a, that was a huge issue. Some, some of my colleagues are like, I don't feel comfortable. I'm going to do residency. And that was trending in my senior year. So yeah, that's a lot of re- That was a huge reason why a lot of my classmates decided to do a residency after dental school before joining a corporate practice or whatever they decided to do. That's interesting. And Daryl, again, it's been really fantastic to kind of hear your take on dentistry because I have certainly learned an absolute mm-hmm. goldmine of information on this profession and kind of what are the, some of the barriers and some of the things that you guys go through. And I hope that other healthcare providers can take a listen to this, understand where you guys are coming from. And then, because ultimately the goal is to really help break down the silos between all healthcare providers to really see how can we really come together? How can we learn about what everyone else, each person has gone through or each profession has gone through to kind of really overall collaborate together to make the best outcome for the patient. So I think that's absolutely clutch. So where can people find Yeah, no. And thank you. And Daryl, where can people find you online or on social media if they have a question for you kind of regarding anything about dentistry or just want to chat? Um, They can reach me at my email, uh, daryl.torculus at gmail.com. And then there's an Instagram. I have Instagram called barbells underscore and underscore birds. You know, it's more of like a personal like blog ish. So kind of getting insight of like, the associate dentist, the new dentist that's out two years. Um, and then Facebook, Daryl Torculus. It's pretty open. So yeah, if you just want to check me out there. So if you have any questions about new dentistry, new dentist, you know, um, how that works, way students who want to get into dentistry, I mean, I, I can for sure pass them along the way, you know, and direct them to the right person if need be. Well, fantastic, man. And thank you again so much for your time and insight. It was very helpful and yeah, no worries. A pleasure. And thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners. Thank <laughs> you.